Hello and welcome to the planet today. It is Friday, January 6, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy every Friday with bonus interviews on Monday and a shorter episode on the first Monday of every month. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, welcome back and happy first episode of 2023. Oh man, I can't believe we made it to 2023. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope everyone's refreshed, revived. You've had some time off. You ate too much food. And now it's time <laughs> to get back into the swing of things. Get in shape again. Here you are. Get in, get in shape again. Lose the 10 pounds that you gained. Yeah. Happy New Year, everybody. I am feeling great to be back. I'm, I'm really excited for this year. I think it's going to be an amazing one for TPT, for our team, for the, the audience, our listenership. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be back in the studio for the first time this year. Yeah, same. Stoked. Can't believe we are even in this year. Still doing this show. Unreal. Yeah. Anything cool happened for you uh, like towards the end of last year? Um, towards the end of last year, yes, there was something. Oh, got it. Okay, so my sister had a kid. Yeah, congratulations, uh, <laughs> Sam. Yeah, congrats, Sam and Louie. Love you guys. It was so awesome to, like, go to the hospital, see the baby, hold him. I'm just, like, completely shell-shocked, and it's so surreal. I hope everyone can be an aunt and uncle one day, because yeah. you'll feel what I'm feeling, and it's just spectacular. Yeah, Sam Lou, if you guys are listening, congratulations. And uh, three more to go to catch up with. Uh, with Nick wants to be a four-time uncle, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, just kidding. You know we, we won't will that into existence yet. <laughs> yeah, not yet. You know what's funny? My mom said, you know, Nick, you have three more before you catch up with Matt. And I was like, no. I was like, I'll never catch up with him. Yeah. <laughs> Too yeah. many. No, I'm kidding. All <laughs> right. We have some catch-up to do from our holiday break. Let's get into it. For quick hits, the first one of 2023, drum roll, is by Katrin Einhorn of the New York Times, and she writes, nearly every country signs on to a sweeping deal to protect nature. Yeah, so before we get into the good news, the U.S. is not an official participant of this agreement uh, because Republicans blocked U.S. membership. The only other country that has not joined this treaty is the Holy See, a.k.a. the Vatican or the jurisdiction of the Pope. So now on to the good news. Roughly 190 nations agreed to preserve 30% of the world's land and sea ecosystems by 2030. There are also other measures included to fight the loss of biodiversity. And this treaty comes at a time where biodiversity is declining at the fastest rate in human history. Scientists predict a sixth great extinction event. And some researchers, authors, scientists are actually saying we're already in the sixth great extinction. But anyway, scientists are predicting that within the coming decades, where millions of plants and animals are at risk of extinction. The first extinction event of this magnitude since the dinosaurs died. Wow. Many scientists and environmental advocates argued for a deal that included stronger measures, but this deal does include mechanisms to monitor our progress, which previous biodiversity agreements did not. 
Brian O'Donnell, director of the Campaign for Nature, called this a scale of conservation that we have never seen attempted before. The deal includes 23 different environmental targets, including the 30 by 30 target, which aims to protect 30% of land and seas by 2030. Currently, 17% of the planet's land and roughly 8% of the oceans are protected. Countries also agreed to manage the remaining 70% of the planet to avoid losing areas of high importance to biodiversity and to ensure that big businesses disclose biodiversity risks and impacts from their operations. So it's not just about protecting 30% of the planet and then having the other 70% just kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. This is also about making sure the remaining 70% is managed correctly. Right. And the next major question that remains is whether or not we will reach these goals. Humans are responsible for each cause of biodiversity loss outlined in this agreement. So it will take a societal shift to fix them. Yeah. And, and honestly, the, the benchmarks to the goals are going to become important here because it's, it's easy to say around even number like 30 by 30. You know, that mm-hmm. sounds good. People can get behind that. That's good for PR. All of those things are important. Yeah, I'm not going to discredit that. But what's what's important to me is how we get there. So if we are at, you know, 17 percent now and 8 percent now for land and oceans, respectively, I want to make sure that we are keeping the governments, the businesses in line with what scientists are saying mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, all right, we're at 17 now, we have seven years to get to 30. No, we have, you know, a year to get to 19, two years to get to 22. Show me those benchmarks. Right. And another issue we're going to run into is financing. So the Paulson Institute found that it will require $700 billion per year worldwide to reverse biodiversity decline by 2030. First question, is that a lot of money? Yes, of course. Second part. When you consider that $44 trillion of the global GDP, that's, that's trillion with a T, that's around half of global GDP, is highly or moderately dependent on nature, a $700 billion global investment does not sound all that bad to me. Yeah, 100%. This is what we've talked about on the show at exhaustion. It's going to take money Mm -hmm. to make money, not make money in this case, to fix the environment. But it's going to take money to fix the environment and the overall cost will be greater if we continue to wait and push it off and push it down the road and kick it towards the next generation. It's not going to work that way. So we have to take action now and this is the right way to start. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's, it's important to think of it as an investment. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're, investing in our futures. And in some cases we're investing in the present because yeah. like we said, you know, half of global GDP is tied to the environment. Well, if half of the world's money is tied from this planet that we live on, to me that's probably something worth protecting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like just think about the the food shortage issue. Mm-hmm. Alone. Just that's it. If you only consider food shortage, that's enough to like be like, "Oh my god." Like people are freaking out over egg prices right now. Like just think about what would happen if like food insecurity got worse. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're a hundred percent right there. And you know, we, we mentioned at the top of the story that the U S didn't sign on. Um, that's generally because when it comes to international treaties, Republicans tend to be more isolationist. Um, so joining treaties can be hard when, you know, you need bipartisan support. 
To combat this, President Biden signed an executive order that would similarly place 30% of the U.S. lands and waters under protection. Um, The issue that we're going to run into is that any legislative efforts to support that goal are expected to face strong opposition when Republicans take control of the House this month. So, uh, you know, domestic policy here is going to impact international treaty making. It's going to impact how we can serve at home. But these are all really important things to bring up. So, you know, long year ahead of us. Let's see what this looks like throughout the year for other countries that signed the treaty. And let's see what we can do here at home in the States. Yeah, agreed. And like you said, we got to have benchmarks. We got to have updates and progress reports. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get into our next story. And it is from NBC News, where Lucas Thompson writes, EPA issues new rule to strengthen water protections in the U.S. Waters of the United States is a phrase that has been redefined to include more wetlands, lakes, and rivers for federal protections. The Clean Water Act was signed into law some 50 years ago. It regulates water pollutants and defines which waters are protected by law. The EPA established a definition for waters of the United States, or WOTUS, in 2015 under then-President Barack Obama, but this was then limited under the Trump administration. The new definition announced in late December clarifies certain qualifications for protected waters and institutes similar protections to those from 2015. The EPA said the new rule is intended to reduce uncertainty from changing regulatory definitions, protect people's health, and support economic opportunity. Yeah, and you know, to me, all that says is the rules in 2015 were pretty good. Let's bring them back and hey, let's make them better. So that, that's kind of what this, this new definition does. Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia criticized this rule by stating that this will cause difficulties for infrastructure, transportation, and energy projects, to which I would say, you know, she's right. We do need to update those three sectors. There are important projects in those three sectors that are probably going to be impacted by this. But those projects updating those three sectors should not come at the cost of degrading our water ecosystems, our drinking water, and the wetlands of the United States. To me, expanding and clarifying the definition of WOTUS is nothing but a good thing. Yeah, agreed. And water is essential to everything we do on this planet. It is essential to agriculture. It is essential to living. Yeah, That's why this is so important, and to have the EPA issue a new rule. Strengthening water protections is a great thing. Uh, Any strengthening we can do to our water systems or infrastructure will be fantastic. Yeah, you know, it keeps your people healthy, it keeps your environment healthy, which then keeps your people healthy. There's, There's really no downside to having cleaner water and having more waters protected. You know, if we have to restructure certain energy projects to get it out of wetlands, well, hey, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Yep. 100 percent. The next story is titled Germany and France seek to match U.S. green industry subsidies by Euractiv's Jonathan Packroff. On December 19th, the German and French economy ministers said that Europe needs to match U.S. subsidies for green industry. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. will have better subsidies for electric cars, wind energy, solar energy, and other domestic green industries. Bruno Le Marie and Robert Abeck want the EU to have a similar path to energy independence. EU leadership, including President Emmanuel Macron of France, have requested the U.S. add an exception for European producers to the IRA, which the U.S. did for Canada and Mexico. 
Since that is looking unlikely, some EU leaders are now pushing for better subsidies at home. So we can keep this discussion kind of brief because uh, neither Nick nor I are international finance experts, but I think it's important to highlight some of the things that we don't always focus on when studying foreign policy. Like in this case, every country wants their own citizens and industries to benefit. That is obviously reasonable. But in doing that, certain trade partners can be negatively impacted. So this is where the debate over better collaboration versus better policies at home matter more. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I am relieved to see that the question is now, how do we make green industry flourish at home instead of whether or not supporting green industry is something we should do at all? Right, right. So what would be like an implication of this? Like, give me like an example. So like maybe like a U.S. car producer is... Yeah, no, no. An example that I could think of is like, different tariffs, you know, if there's a a German producer of a certain piece of equipment that goes into solar panels. Right now, what what we're trying to do with the IRA is incentivize American companies to build that material. So Germany is now saying like, hey, you're not treating us as good as you used to as a trade partner because, you know, you used to buy our piece Now you want it made at home. So their options are get us to change our mind, get us to add an exception like we did for Canada and and Mexico, or enact similar policies at home so that their industry impacts the German economy more than the global economy. Right, right. So that's kind of what the debate is over. It's like globalism, global cooperation versus government incentives to help in internal domestic right, industry. Right, 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 to boost their own industry at home. Gotcha. So yeah, interesting topic, and I think that there are definitely merits to both collaborating and to encouraging more domestic output. So, you know, we'll see which one works better for different, different countries. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, after the break, we will have a couple more quick hits for you, so stay tuned. Keep it dialed right here. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, 85% of rural land in California is now in high or very high risk for wildfires. New analysis shows by CNN's Brandon Miller and Cherry Mossberg. 
California's new proposed fire hazard severity zone map, which has not been updated since 2007, shows that nearly 17 million acres of land will be in CAL FIRE's worst fire risk designation. CAL FIRE is the Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, and that 17 million acre number is larger than the entire state of West Virginia. These designations are important for building standards, real estate disclosures, insurance purposes, and future planning. The proposed map does not include cities or large urban areas, which are expected to be added in an updated version next year. Around 98% of California was in drought conditions at the end of December, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor, as the state remains in a multi-year mega drought fueled by warmer temperatures and drier conditions. Before this map is officially adopted, there will be meetings over the next several weeks to allow for public comment. Going to read a quick excerpt from the article. Cal Fire said the new map should help communities tailor their wildfire planning and preparedness efforts to the most vulnerable locations. The zones are also used to determine where defensible space standards, wildland urban interface building codes, and the state minimum fire safe regulations are required, according to Cal Fire. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is tough because it's not going to get any better. Like, uh, that's just the, the hard truth in California is that it's not going to get any better. Drought is going to worsen. Uh, drier conditions are going to worsen, which is like, how could it even get more dry? When I lived there, it was like shocking to see a day of rain. Mm-hmm. And if you're someone who's thinking about moving to California, I can't see how this news comes and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to really go for it. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that, you know, I guess it's similar for New York. I was going to say, you know, a place like Los Angeles or, or San Francisco, Silicon Valley, where you have those places where people aspire to go there. You know, people want to go move to L.A. And, and make it in Hollywood, make it in music or go to SF and make it in tech. And the environmental risks of doing that, you know, it's it's really dry. It's arid. There are wildfires often. There's water shortages often. And the reason I say it's similar to New York is because with the sea level rising, Manhattan's an island. Yep. You know, maybe it's not as immediate, maybe it's not as in our face, but if you're going to buy property in Manhattan that it's going to take 30 years to pay it off and then you're going to have to try to sell it again in 30 years, you know, you're, you're basically banking on us figuring out what to do about sea level rise. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a scary thought. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, it's interesting that we're privileged enough to be in a country where I think we can figure it out. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't think that the sea level rise will be so sudden that we don't have adequate time to plan. And I think that you know, coastal restoration and coastal engineering is going to be a, a major player in in why New York continues to thrive. But how do you fix California if the only answer is? It needs more water. It needs more snow melt coming from the mountains in California to reach the valleys. Mm-hmm. But it's not snowing because the climate's getting hotter and hotter and drier. Right. So I, I, I think you're right. Like, how, how do you move to California knowing that unless, you, unless it's going to be a short-term move? Yeah, exactly. All right, let's switch gears into something that is a little bit more positive. So our last- A lot more positive. <laughs> <laughs> Our last quick hit of the week is by Emily Gidry Schatzel of the National Wildlife Federation, who writes, Largest single ecosystem restoration project in U.S. history gets green light. 
Louisiana's mid-Baratarius sediment diversion cleared a major hurdle when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers permitted the project to move forward. The diversion will build and fortify tens of thousands of acres in the Barataria Basin, which is experiencing one of the highest rates of land loss on the planet. The goal is to restore coastal wetlands by mimicking the natural processes of the Mississippi River to connect it to its wetlands. Yeah, so this will help protect vulnerable communities from hurricanes and sea level rise and promote the long-term health of the local environment and its wildlife. Colin O'Mara, president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, said the Mid-Barataria sediment diversion is an innovative solution that will not only build and enhance tens of thousands of acres of essential wildlife habitat, but will also protect vulnerable coastal communities from worsening flood risk due to increasing sea level rise and stronger storms. To me, this is why the first story we spoke about today, protecting biodiversity, is so important. Mm. Protecting natural processes benefit people, the environment, the economy, and whatever the cost of protecting the planet is, it's lower than the cost of doing nothing. Yeah, completely agree. And this also goes back to the story that we were literally just talking about, about what are we going to do about sea level rise. This is a way that we're improving our wetlands, um, which is obviously affected by um, sea level rise. So connecting the wetlands back to the Mississippi River is going to be huge. And to keep all of those species that live in, in, the, um, in the wetlands there or even just around the, the ocean around it is super important. Yeah. And, and wetlands also aren't something that just impacts the coast. So if you're listening to this and you're like, all right, that's great for Mississippi. That's good, great for coastal communities. I live in Kansas. Wetlands are also important for you because when we think of it on the coast, we think of maybe sea level rise relating to storm surge. You know, anytime a hurricane comes in and hits or goes off the coast of the lower Atlantic region in the U.S., all that flooding that's what's going to be absorbed by wetlands, by marshes, whatever you want to call yeah. them. You know, they, they provide a buffer. But in different regions of the U.S. where you're not really facing sea level rise, you're still facing storms. So mm-hmm. wetlands areas provide that buffer for, okay, so you live down slope of a pretty large hill. As it rains a lot and water starts to roll down that hill, wetlands are going to absorb that really well. There's different plants, different animals that are going to survive and flourish there, create a ton of biodiversity, you know, encourage local native species to grow around it, Mm -hmm. it's going to protect you from storms. So wherever you are, if there's a wetlands near you, that's really critical infrastructure for your community. Yeah. And we're also talking about a region that is like notorious for getting extremely strong storms, hurricanes, all that stuff. So this is, this is massive. Absolutely. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. We are going to be back on Monday for a Monday mini-sode, our first of the year, with two more quick hits for you. Yeah, so if you're new to TPT, we do a shorter episode on the first Monday of every month to cover more stories and so that the episode is easier to share with a friend. Yeah, so please do share that with a friend. You know, we closed out last year with this, but we are immensely, immensely grateful for everyone who has helped this show grow to where it is today. And we want to make sure that 2023 continues that growth and actually increases on growth. So thank you in advance for sharing. 
Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod, where I promise to be more active than I was last month. Mm-hmm. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all of our music. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.